We're in the third week of our uh, journey through the gospel according to Mark. And our passage this morning is Mark 1, verses 14 through 20. Mark 1, 14 through 20. You can find it in the bulletin or be up on the screen behind me here. This is God's word. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. And as he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and, his, Zebedee and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, now that you would transform us by the power of your Spirit through your word spoken to us. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start off by asking you a question. I'm going to ask everyone in the room, but apparently it's a question especially for men. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? (laughs) How often do you think about the Roman Empire? It's a popular question right now. Have you heard about this trend on social media? Here's a summary article from Forbes, headline, how often do men think about the Roman Empire? A lot, according to a new TikTok trend. TikTok users are asking their boyfriends, fathers, and other men in their life, and notice it doesn't say husbands in that first sentence, because if you have a husband or a wife, you shouldn't be a TikTok user, okay? But that's that's a separate sermon, that's a different sermon. They're asking the men in their lives how often they think about the Roman Empire, and surprisingly, some say that they think about the fallen empire daily or more, sparking online confusion and launching a TikTok trend that's garnered a billion views. Apparently, men think about the Roman Empire more than you would expect, and they have plenty of reasons, including the empire's vastness, gladiators, and architectural advancements. Some respondents backed it up with evidence. Why wouldn't I think about the Roman Empire, one user asked, praising the Romans for creating aqueducts and concrete known for its lasting strength. Other answers were more straightforward. After one woman asked her boyfriend how often he thinks about the Roman Empire, he said every day simply, quote, because it's cool. (laughs) One TikTok user asked her brother how often he thinks about the empire, and he said two to three times a week. And when she didn't believe him, he went to his computer and showed her a replica of the Colosseum that he had built on Minecraft which he said took him months. (laughs) Now, I didn't know about this trend until last week when really my only friend who's an avid TikTok user, Matt Hamm, told me about it. Um, And when when I mentioned it to my wife, she said, oh yeah, I've been wanting to ask you about that. And I answered, honestly, I really don't think about the Roman Empire very often because I think about Disney World instead. Um, (laughs) A few days ago, the New York Times published a follow-up article where they asked, what's your Roman Empire? And they asked women what random thing pops into their head more often than you would expect. And some of the most common answers were Princess Diana, aliens, and of course, Taylor Swift. Now this morning, 
Jesus wants to ask you a question. Okay? And it might sound similar, but it's actually much, much, much more important. This morning, Jesus is asking, how often do you think about the kingdom of God? How often do you think about the kingdom of God? Mark 1.14 describes the launch of Jesus' public ministry. It says, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now remember, Mark gives relatively less attention to the words of Jesus than the other biography writers in the New Testament. He gives more attention to the works of Jesus. His is sometimes called the gospel of action. And so it's important that right here at the very beginning of his story, he gives us sort of an encapsulated summary of the message that Jesus was proclaiming as he went around Galilee and ultimately as he traveled around Israel And it says that he was preaching and proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. Now, if you're sort of Christianity familiar and someone asks you, what is the gospel? Chances are the answer that you would give would have something to do with the life of Jesus arriving at the death of Jesus and culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. And you wouldn't be wrong about that. But remember, we're right here at the beginning of the book, and Jesus hasn't done any of those things yet. And so the question is, what does Jesus himself mean by the gospel here? When he says, repent and believe the good news, what good news is he referring to? And we get a few clues in the verse itself. First, he's saying the time is fulfilled. The word that Jesus uses there for time is the word kairos, okay? It's not the simple word for chronological time in ancient Greek. It means something like a season or an occasion or like a new event or an era. And he says the time is fulfilled. So he doesn't just say it's time, now's the time. He's talking about some sort of fulfillment, With that first statement, it's like Jesus is saying the great pregnancy of history has finally come to full term. Everything has been building to this, and now the time is finally fulfilled. A new era is beginning in the world. And then he says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. For Jesus, the gospel, the good news proclamation of history seems to be about the coming of of the kingdom of God. And throughout his ministry, Jesus talked about the kingdom all the time. He uses the word kingdom 19 times in the 16 chapters of Mark and something like 120 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined. It is the main topic, the main content of his teaching. And when theologians who have spent a lot of time mulling over what the kingdom of God means in Jesus' teaching, the two terms that come up the most often when they try to explain it are already but not yet and inbreaking. It is an already but not yet kingdom and it is an inbreaking kingdom. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom has come near, he's saying the kingdom is really and finally invading the world but we don't see it clearly or entirely yet. The kingdom is already upon us, but it's not yet what it will be. You and I live in the age of the inbreaking of the kingdom. 
So how often do you think about the kingdom of God? I heard one person describe this as like, you know when you have blinds hanging in your house and they're sort of like 45 degree angled and so if you're standing in one place and you look at them, all that you see is sort of white, boring, dusty blinds, right? But if you change your perspective, you see through the blinds to something glorious and bright going on beyond them. And the kingdom of God is kind of like that. It overlays our world. That's exactly how the Bible describes it. Like in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha prays, Lord, would you help my servant see what's really going on here? And God opens his eyes, and he sees that they're surrounded by hosts of angel armies. Right? If you and I, if our eyes were opened to what was going on with the kingdom in this world and in this room this morning, we would be stunned. Our jaws would drop right, to see the stakes to see the glory, to see the conflict of the kingdom. Finally, Jesus says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. So proposition one, the time is fulfilled. Proposition two, the kingdom of God has come near and therefore imperative response, repent and believe. And in fact, those are always the two sides of the coin when it comes to responding to the gospel. Repent and believe. In this context, repent means to recognize that you personally have been a rebel operative for opposing kingdoms. Repentance means recognizing that you and I have tried to be the king or the queen of our own independent domain over against the kingdom of God. I have spent weeks and months and years building Minecraft coliseums to my own glory. We spend most, if not all, of our time and energy building elaborate sandcastles for our comfort and indulgence and fame. And Jesus comes along and he lifts our chins to his face and he says, lovingly but firmly, those kingdoms won't satisfy. Those aren't the kingdoms that you're made for and those kingdoms won't last. Repentance means agreeing with him when he says that to us and then asking, okay, then what instead? And the what instead is believe, faith, follow. Faith in the Bible isn't merely intellectual assent to a set of truths. It means daily dependence, discipleship, following. Faith expresses itself in a life that is increasingly sold out for the kingdom. We'll come back to that at the end. Let's take a step back for a moment and consider what is the kingdom? What actually is the kingdom? And what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus uses that word a lot. He teaches about it a lot. But I mean, what what is the kingdom? We need to have some idea before we can understand what it means to repent and believe and to begin to live as citizens. What is the kingdom of God and what is it like? We could put it simply and say that the kingdom is the realm where the king reigns. The kingdom is the realm where the king reigns, and he reigns over the world and over individual hearts, over individual subjects. And so you can see the already but not, na- not yet nature of the kingdom there, can't you? Right? It is objectively true that God reigns over all things, that he is sovereign over the world. And yet, to us, we see that evil is still running rampant. And if we can be honest, we know that our own rebellious hearts often refuse to submit to God's rule. God is already reigning, 
but his reign is not yet manifested as the extinction of evil in the world or in my heart. So what's going on there? Earlier last week, a few days ago, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came to our front door. (laughs) And as I started talking to these guys, one of these young men who were much more um, courageous and committed about their evangelism than I am most of the time, by the way, one of these young men said to me, he said, you know, the world is so full of evil and suffering, but one day God is going to snap his fingers like Thanos and he is going to eliminate all the evil in the world. And in that moment, I thought to myself, man, this is a pretty good presentation, right? <laughs> it's like um, relevant, mildly terrifying, includes a Marvel illustration, right? But it's perfect for me. Um, But more importantly, I thought, okay, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're wrong about a lot of things, but they are not wrong about that. One day, God is going to extinguish evil, all of the evil in the world, but the mistake that almost every person who has ever lived in human history has made is to assume that they will certainly be on the right side of that conflict when it happens. What if the reason that the world is so full of evil is because it's so full of you and me? We can be quick to say, if God is reigning, why doesn't he do something about all this sin and badness in the world? But what if doing something about sin means doing something about me? And so what does God do? He sends his son into the world to be the savior king that we desperately need. God sends the prince of life into a rebellious world to usher people into his kingdom by faith and repentance before he finally eliminates evil forever. We saw this in the catechism that we just read together, right? How does Jesus carry out the office of a king? And the the order is important, right? First it said he subdues us to himself, that is he makes us to recognize and respond to his reign with repentance and increasing faith. Second, he governs and defends us. He rules and protects us. He rules over our lives in such a way that nothing can come to pass except that which is best for his glory and our fullest salvation. But one day, he will finally conquer all of his and our enemies. That is going to happen when Jesus comes again. He came to do everything necessary to rescue us from enmity to friendship so that when the kingdom comes in full, we will live with him forever. Now, if I were here this morning and I didn't identify as a Christian, okay, if I'm skeptical about the truth claims of Christianity, right now I'd be thinking, do you really expect me to believe that there is a kingdom, a realm of God's reign that sort of overlays our world and that it's breaking in and God is in control and one day that kingdom is going to arrive in full and final brilliance with the destruction of all evil. You expect me to believe that? To which I would respond, of course I don't expect you to believe that. I cannot convince you of that. It is an incredible claim and it would take a miracle for anyone to believe that. Instead, what I want to challenge you with this morning is one simple thing. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. If you want to know what the kingdom is like, look at what the king is like. Jesus the king came into the world to show and tell what the kingdom 
is like. And it would be a mistake to think that he came to sort of negotiate terms. Okay, it's not a negotiation. But he does invite you into a real and honest and living relationship with himself. He came to show you the real God and to pursue the real you. If you want to know what the kingdom is like, consider what the king is like, what Jesus is like. And all throughout Mark, what we're going to see is how powerful and authoritative Jesus is. He heals incurable diseases. He casts out demons and embarrasses them. He performs amazing miracles. And whenever he teaches, the common response is, no one ever spoke like this person before with this sort of wisdom and authority. And every single time that Jesus does something amazing, I mean, here's the catch. Whenever Jesus does something amazing, something powerful in the Gospels, his followers respond by saying, let's go to Jerusalem right now and make you the king. Let's put you on the throne. Let's cast off the Roman oppressor. Let's defeat evil. They say, of course you're the king, Jesus. And of course we're the good guys. Let's go put down those bad guys once and for all. And every single time Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. You don't really understand the situation. You don't understand how high the stakes are. And so you don't really understand what I'm up to, what I'm actually trying to do. What we see consistently across the Gospels is that Jesus wields immense power, but the point of his life was never to seize power as such, at least not in the way that we would expect. Maybe that's why, by the way, so many of us think about the Roman Empire often, right? That's what a kingdom is supposed to look like, right? That's what power looks like, magnitude, fame, affluence, influence, architectural grandeur, domination. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. That's not what Jesus is about. And today the Roman Empire is dead and gone, but the kingdom of God is still spreading and saving, spreading and saving. And one day the American Empire will be gone. And the kingdom of God will still be spreading and saving. If you want to know what the kingdom is like, look at what the king is like. And what we find is that King Jesus is local, he's simple, he's compassionate, he's kind. Later, Jesus will say things like, the kingdom of God is like the smallest of seeds, a pinch of leaven and a huge lump of dough, a little child. Jesus doesn't ride in a grand caravan down Pennsylvania Avenue. He walks slowly beside the Sea of Galilee. The king of the only eternal, all-powerful kingdom, when he comes to the world, is local and loving, and he smells a little bit like fish. No other religion has the nerve to say something like that. No man-made worldview would ever come up with something like that. In this passage, Jesus launches his ministry with an emphatic declaration. The time of fulfillment has come. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And then what does he do? He goes to backwoods Galilee and he walks slowly by the sea 
and he calls a few fishermen to follow him. He gets together a ragtag group of unexpected nobodies, and he said, let me show you what the kingdom is like. Why do you think that they followed him, by the way? It says they followed him immediately. Why did Peter and Andrew and James and John and so many others leave behind their old lives to follow Jesus? I think that sort of technical theological answer to that question is the Holy Spirit, right? But I think if you had asked them at the time, they would have said, we never met anyone who simultaneously exuded such authority and such kindness. No one else was ever so obviously powerful and yet so consistently servant-hearted and self-sacrificial. They would have said, I was convinced that he was the king of everything, and yet I also got the sense that he really liked me. There's never been another king like that. There will never be another king like that. Now from this moment on, from Mark 1 onward, everything that Jesus does is designed to end up at one place, the cross. The king intentionally marches his way to the cross. Think about what that means. What does it mean that a person who can calm a storm or raise the dead with a single word, a person who makes demons tremble, and a person who can inspire multitudes with a short sermon and can pass through an angry mob untouched, what does it mean if that person with that much power and that much control willingly goes to their death? The only possible answer is love. Right? He did it out of love for you. Jesus was local, he was loving, and so he was dying. That's where this story is going. That's what Mark wants to show us. Follow the king to the cross and watch what happens there. On the cross, the king himself took the penalty that rebellion deserves so that in him we might become citizens of the kingdom and more than that, children of God. Right, this is what we just sang together a few minutes ago in what is objectively the greatest hymn ever written, and can it be that I should gain? Right. He left his father's throne above, so free and infinite his grace, and humbled himself, so great his love, and bled for all his helpless race. Right. And then did you see where it ended up? He left the throne to bleed for us. And then it says at the end of the song, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in his righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love that the king would die for me. Now that leads to our last point, okay? King Jesus walks slowly and gently beside the Sea of Galilee and he calls his first disciples, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. If you want to know whether you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you want to know whether Jesus is not only your savior, but also your king, two good diagnostic questions. Are you following and are you fishing? Am I following Jesus and am I fishing for people? 
Jesus extends the same call to us that he did to his first disciples. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of people. Have you responded to that call? Are you following and are you fishing? The following question comes first. Are you following Jesus a little bit more each day, taking another step and following him each day? You see, the, this is important, okay? The entryway into apprenticeship with the Fisher King is exceedingly wide and always open. Right? He says simply, come just as you are, the real you right now, and follow me. There is no prerequisite of worldly success or religious acumen. You don't have to be famous or influential in the world, and you don't have to be religiously cleaned up or performative. And in fact, Jesus seems to think that the sooner that you realize that you're not strong, that you're not adept, the better positioned that you are to actually follow him. The first line of the Sermon on the Mount, some of you women studied this this past week at the Women's Bible Study, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What following Jesus will look like practically is different for every person in this room, but a good general question is, am I following Jesus in increasing poverty of spirit, poverty of self, less independence, and increasing dependence a little bit more each day? I want to, okay, a little sidebar here, share a little bit of myself now, if that's okay with you guys. This week, I knew I was preaching on this passage, right? Like Monday morning, I start to look at it and read it and really think about it, and I say, okay, this is, clear, this is gonna be a sermon about the kingdom of God. I'm gonna tell these people what the kingdom of God is, <laughs> right? And guys, like by Thursday morning, I was so like depressed and discouraged because I was like, I don't think I have any idea what the kingdom of God is. And I know that I don't live like a citizen of the kingdom of God most of the time. Right? I mean, and maybe that's the point. Right? And so I, I was thinking to myself, there's something that's kind of hard, right? Something that's convicting that I want to say about this. And I want to recognize that I'm like an Enneagram 8 who's kind of a jerk and likes to say controversial things, okay? And so I don't want to just like throw out like a grenade just to like hurt people, which is something that I do too often. And I hope that y'all will like forgive me for that and call me out for it when I do it. But I do, I want to say something that I think is true as lovingly and as gently as I can, okay? As we seek to follow Jesus, we have to hold two realities in tension. Okay, the first is that his first call to his disciples is simple and open and freeing. He just says, come follow me. But later on, this same Jesus will also say in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? So in other words, the entryway to following Jesus is wide open, but as the journey progresses, it becomes increasingly costly and demanding and deadly. I mean, ultimately what we find is that it is a call to self-denial and to death, to die to yourself and to die to the world. Now, is that a bait and switch on Jesus' part? 
right? Does he, come, does he come along and say, hey, come follow me. Anyone is welcome. And then a few years later, he's like, we're all going to go die together, right? Like, I don't think that that's what's going on, right? Jesus is leading us along one step at a time, and he's saying, I'm leading you to something that is higher and deeper and better than you could imagine, but the only way that you get to that resurrection is through death. The only way that you find the kingdom that you were made for is to die to the kingdoms, to the sandcastles that you have been trying to build. And sometimes I wonder if here at Hope, we are so intentional, and I think so good, at calling people to the wide open door of following Jesus that we don't talk enough about the call to self-denial and death. And maybe sometimes we're frustrated and feel like we're sort of living this kind of partial experience of the Christian life because what we've done is we've taken the king of the universe and we've tried to make him the butler in our sandcastle, right? And like, yeah, Jesus, you're my savior and I like you. And yeah, of course you're my king, Jesus, and of course I'm the good guy, so do this thing for me and let's go do this thing together, right? And he wants to, he wants to tear down your sandcastle, and he wants, you to, he wants to lead you to something better. Right? Something better than affluence and success in the world has to offer. And so the second question, the second diagnostic question, which is also important, is are you fishing? Are you fishing? That is, as you follow Jesus, in verse 17, when Jesus says, follow me, and then there's a really important verb structure. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of people. So if you're really following the real Jesus, you will become something, and one of the things that you will become is a fisher of other people, right? That is, as you follow Jesus, are his kingdom and his lordship becoming significant enough to you that you want to bring other people into those things as well? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are certainly called to be a fisher of people, right? Or to put it another way, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you're called to be making disciples. You know, the fisher metaphor here is an aptly chosen one by Jesus, because to be a good fisher, you have to know where your pond is, and you have to have the right equipment, the right bait, right? And so do you know what is the pond, the place that Jesus has called me to fish for other people and to disciple them into the kingdom, right? It's probably, I mean, it is certainly your home, right? But it could be your office, it could be where you work out, but do you know where your pond is, and are you equipping yourself with the skills necessary to share the gospel with other people? Right? That's, that takes an intentional effort to learn, how do I share the gospel with others? Right. I had one of the most encouraging coffees that I've ever had since working at Hope on Friday. I got together with a friend, with a brother in Christ, and he said, hey, I'm just kind of wondering lately, what is like discipleship? and kind of men's accountability look like here at Hope. And he started telling me some of the past experiences that he had, and he said, do we do anything like that? And I said, well, I, I think we do, but maybe you're supposed to be doing some of that. Right? And it was this wonderful moment where he looked at me and he was like, yeah, I think you're right. And this guy's about 35 years old, sometimes we think it's the 65, the 75, the experienced empty nester Christians who are supposed to be doing this, but if you are a follower of Jesus, he has called you to be a fisher of people, to take a few people and to say, let's follow Jesus together. Let's meet him. Let's learn what the king is like. Do you want to read the Bible with me? Can I tell you about the hope that I have in Christ? 
Do you just want to get together for a beer? Are you following? Are you fishing? How often do you think about the kingdom of God?